begin tonight by turning to Philippians 4, uh, 6 or 7. I'd like to uh, start with uh, going through a verse, a scripture, just kind of like uh, a review of the faith rest drill on some of the basic promises of the Word. Make sure that we um, can focus and go follow these. One of the great problem-solving uh, approaches in the Christian way of life is claiming the promises from the Word of God. So if you'll turn in Philippians 4, 6 or 7, uh, let's look at that promise. <clears throat> and uh, if you read it uh, to yourself as, as I read it from my, uh, the uh, new ASV translation, um, and then we'll just go through the drill, all three parts of it. The, step one would be to claim the promise. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, shall guard, guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. So that's the promise. So step two is to uh, look through that promise and begin to develop the rationale for why it's true. And if you look carefully in verse 6 and 7, you should be able uh, quite rapidly uh, to see what attribute of God that verse is structured on. Anybody? Yeah, omniscience. Notice it says he surpasses all comprehension. That's omniscience. And it's that omniscience that gives peace. And you say, well, wait a minute. How do you go from omniscience to peace? It says the peace of God that passes or exceeds all comprehension, that, that thing shall guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus, or stabilize your hearts and your minds. Well, how does God in his omniscience? Well, it gets back again to good theology. And that's why these verses are not psychological panaceas. So, let's looking at this. Um, Tommy, can you shut down this that bank of flights. I think it's getting too much bounce off the screen. Thank you. Um, the, uh, in the mentality of the Spirit, the way Scripture views it, is it goes back to basics. The creator-creature distinction. And we distinguish between the knowledge we have as creatures and the knowledge God has as creator. So there we are, back right smack dab to create a creature distinction indicated by this dashed line. And so we're down below the line. We're a creature. And so we have our plans. And we, if we have our plans, we have to submit them to him because we can't make a total plan because we don't have total knowledge. So when we make a plan, we submit it to him, and he can veto that if he wishes. And we have to be open to that veto. And not to be open to the veto is to be in rebellion and is to be unable to trust the Lord. And that's what happens. On the other hand, when the peace, everything falls apart, which is the other problem we have, um, the comfort, and that's the verse here, the peace of God shall... Uh, which passes all understanding shall guard your hearts and your minds. It's this. Tech, here, here's the thing that upsets. This is the thing that would undercut uh, and upset the heart and upset the mind. And they have to be protected or guarded against that upsetting. 
is to go and use as a reference the fact that even though we can't penetrate into his omniscience, we trust that his omniscience fits the pieces together. So we can't get all those pieces put together, but we trust that they do fit together. And they fit together from his perspective. So that's why verse 7 is written the way verse 7 is written. It says, the peace of God that passes all comprehension. Now, if the peace of God did not pass all comprehension, then it might not guard our hearts and our minds. Because if we went back to the way the pagan unbeliever thinks, he on, goes from one extreme to the next. The mind of the flesh always does this. There's always this pendulum swinging from one side to swinging to the other side. And we all know this because we all experience it. But on one hand, you develop, if you look at the left-hand side of this diagram, it says, demands unity and order. So, here's the, here's the pendulum swing. Everything's going to be ordered. I will control. I can control. I'm so great that I have got it all together. And what that has is, uh, the, you know, the, the vocabulary of that is, I can and I will. Inflexible plans. And when this kind of thinking takes over an entire society or takes over the leadership of a group of people in history, every time it has done this, it always produces the same thing. A kingdom of man of religious and political tyranny. It is always the product of this branch of the flesh. The idea that I am going to control everything and I am going to do this and I am going to do that because we know everything. Well, contrast that again with the mentality of the spirit. What is the mentality of the spirit? When we have a plan, what do we recognize if we recognize the creator-creature distinction? We take the plan to him because we are unable to complete the graph because the graph is always cut off by the limitations of our knowledge. So we can't have a total plan. So by keeping the creator-creature distinction in mind and submitting our plans to him, realizing and acknowledging our dependency at that point, it keeps us from going this way. And conversely, we can go this way when everything's falling apart, and if we create, keep the creator-creature distinction in mind, then we understand that everything fits together in spite of the fact that it all appears to fall apart from our perspective. But if we don't want to do that, and we want to do our own thing, then what we usually wind up with is some form of depression, some form of demanding diversity and freedom. I can't, or I failed or I'm out on my own and we won't have a, a, a unity, overwhelmed. And what happens when this sort of thinking gets going in any social group, that also has a manifestation. Not totalitarianism, but anarchy, religious and political anarchy. So these are ways of thinking that have to be dealt with. So, again, faith rest drill, we come to a verse like Philippians 4, 6 through 7, we claim the promise, and that gets us started, 
And then we have to work through so we really trust the promise and it's just not rote memory, just not blabbing words, but we really mean it. And we get to the point where we really mean it by going through a little exercise like we just did. It takes two or three minutes maybe, sometimes it takes 20 minutes, sometimes I have to do it 50 times until we train ourselves that that's the proper biblical way of handling the situation. So there's a little bit of the faith rest drill. So we're going to come now to the lesson at hand and let's have a word of prayer. Father, we thank you again for the scriptures. We thank you for the gift of salvation by grace. We thank you for the unmerited favor that you bestow on us through the atonement work of the Lord Jesus Christ on the cross. We ask that you would give us insight tonight as we look at the results of the life of Christ in history and how that was a setup for the origin of the church. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Now, on the notes we handed out last time, I summarized all the material we've covered. And I did that in that little diagram of blocks. And I, I did it in that way because we, we, are, we need to, to realize when we come into the New Testament that we're coming in in the last few chapters of the story. And I don't know how long it will be before leadership in evangelical circles, it dawns on them that two-thirds of the Bible is Old Testament. And God wrote the Bible. Uh, apparently, they think that the, the first two-thirds was just a disposable section. And that we can sort of do away with that and get to be the New Testament. We're New Testament Christians. No, you're not. We're Old Testament. Old Testament is the foundation of the New Testament. So, so the Old Testament is necessary. In this diagram that I've got, I just count the number of things. We, we've been through 18 different events over the last five years. We've gone through doctrine after doctrine after doctrine. We've gone through all kinds of controversy because every one of these is debated and rejected by the world system in which we live. Big fight about creation. Big fight about the fall. Big fight about the flood. Big fight about natural law versus the Noahic Covenant and the origin of civilization. Didn't happen that way. Everybody evolved from bananas. Then we have the call of Abraham. And so then we have the, the, a fight about that because this is, represents discrimination against everybody that's not a Jew. And so now we have the Gentiles angry because God chose the call, call of Abraham without consulting the committee of all people. God calls Abraham because he wanted to call Abraham. That's his right. That's his privilege. God calls him. Now we have a big disruption in history. Now there's constant warfare from the call of Abraham to the present day and outside of Jerusalem. And this warfare has not stopped. And with all due respect, the President of the United States is not going to stop it. The only person going to stop it is the Lord Jesus Christ. And he will stop it in his due time. So, the point is that all these events are background to the origin of the church, the destiny of the church. Why is the church existing? You know, it is kind of an odd body when you look at all these events having to do with Israel, 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 Israel. Now, what's the church business here? How did that get started? So those are the questions that we're going to deal with as we go through these events. And we're going to add to these 18 events four or five more. 
And one of the first events we're going to deal with, which is the notes we handed out tonight, is the origin of the church from heaven, which deals with our first event, which is going to be the ascension and session of the Lord Jesus Christ. I don't think I can remember, I don't think I can remember in, in the last 20 years of attending church, I have ever heard a sermon on the ascension and session of the Lord Jesus Christ. I don't know if that's been your experience, but I haven't, I haven't really heard an exposition. The last time I remember an exposition was when uh, I was listening to a theology professor doing it. Uh, and, and here's one of the, the founding points of the church. So, again, we're dealing with neglected sections of Scripture, but we've got to remember they all are based on these previous events. It doesn't make sense to start in the New Testament. It doesn't make any sense to start with a church. The church is the last one, not the first one. All right, now, let's deal with a problem. The problem that, was, that the, we have to deal with when we come to asking a question about the nature of the church, what, and by, by the way, this is not a theory. When we ask the question, what is the nature of the church, we're part of the church. We are the church. We're trying to find out what is our purpose in history. Why are we doing things in the church age differently than David did, Solomon did? How come there's, uh, there's this difference? Why is it that um, certain things that Jesus did, uh, remember when we were dealing with his life, remember the observation we made, the fact that he said, I don't want you to go to Gentiles, go to the house of Israel. Gentiles are dogs. Now how is that going to come over in, a, in, a, in today? That's not, the, that's not the, the, a marching order to the church. It's a different marching order, different gospel. That was the gospel to Israel. It wasn't the gospel of the Gentiles. He said, don't go to the Gentiles. Don't go to the cities of the Gentiles. You stay in the, in the Jewish section. And Jesus said that. It's in the Gospels. It's in several places in the Gospels. So, there's a, something's happened. Something's different. So, the picture then, what we're asking, what we're driving at is, where's our place in the grand scheme? Where do we fit in? Up to now, it's always been past history. That's what David did. That's what Solomon did. That's what Noah did. What are we doing? So, we start, and in this introduction section, we're going to start with a problem. And this is the setup for where we're going. So, let's get the problem in mind. What were, how was history left when the Lord Jesus Christ died? Okay, we have the birth. We have the life, we have the death of the Lord Jesus, and we have his resurrection. We finished studying those last year. Jesus Christ rose, he ascended, and he disappeared from history. So, Jesus Christ's career on earth appears to be ended. And what's puzzling about this is that if you look at his life and look at his birth, it was said that he would reign as the son of David. It was said in the Magnificat that he would be the one who would bring in the kingdom. John the Baptist announced him, Behold, the Lamb of God, and he said, The kingdom is at hand, meaning it's imminent. 
the kingdom is imminent. Well, if the kingdom is imminent, and what, how do we, how, why isn't the king here? Where'd the king go? And how can you have a kingdom without a king? Some people would explain it as when he got to the death. What was the latest, latest idiotic reference I heard explaining about the death of Christ? Somebody told me recently in the last couple of days that they had uh, read somewhere or heard somebody say, some professor said that, uh, theology professor, uh, that Jesus really didn't die. Uh, it's got poisoned or something and, uh, and uh, went somewhere. I don't know what it is. But, uh, you know, it's, it gets back to the same old thing. We don't know much, but we know one thing for us. Absolutely certain. The Bible's wrong. The Bible can't possibly write. Now, we don't know that. We don't know much. But we know the Bible can't be true. And we also know that there'll never be evidence found to support the scriptures. In a million years of digging around, we'll never find any evidence whatsoever that will support scripture. That we know for sure now. So, the death of Christ was real, and it ended his career. So the problem is that when Christ died, what happened to the kingdom program? It appeared in his early ministry that he kept preaching the gospel of the kingdom. He said, Israel, I'm your Messiah, accept me. And what would have happened? If Israel had accepted her Messiah, the kingdom would have come. Well, now Israel did not accept her Messiah, so the kingdom didn't come. And then he got crucified. Well, if you look on the top of page three, the notes. This leaves the dilemma of what happens. Uh, well, let's look at the first. I don't mean the top paragraph on three. I mean the middle paragraph. We'll get to the top one. The king himself warned his followers of his rejection by Israel and the ensuing historical age between his first and second advents. Now, when Jesus Christ walked the face of the earth, people weren't thinking in terms of two advents, okay? One advent. Kings come. Kingdom's here. So, it was an offer to Israel to accept her king. But God doesn't treat people like robots, and God put the perfect leader onto the nation, and Israel had as much discernment then as American voters seem to have today. We would vote for Satan as long as he kept the economy good. And the economy was bad, Jesus couldn't get elected. So, in that day, the issue was, are we going to be free from Rome? I got business here. You know, I got, I, never mind this religious business, I got business. So here's this Jesus coming along, and what does he do? He starts uh, an agitation. He gets everybody upset. And the high priest, remember, last year when we dealing with the death of Christ, what did the high priest say about Jesus? He said, look, this guy keeps this up. The Romans are going to come in here, and we're going to really have a problem. So let's knock him off and get rid of the problem. You know, shoot him. Get rid of him. Solve the problem, but let's not let the Romans get involved with this thing. Already got enough Romans around. 
So, first advent wasn't a first advent. It was the singular advent in most people's minds. But Jesus, as you progress through all four Gospels, or actually the three, the three synoptics, you can diagram them this way. That Jesus builds a popular response to himself. Crowds gather around. They see the miracles. And then he starts in the middle of this. The Pharisees begin, in the name of the national leadership, begin to reject him. And that's that passage in Matthew 12. Remember the passage that says that uh, every sin shall be forgiven except the sin of the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. And at that point, Jesus begins to announce strange new things. And he begins to teach in parables, which he hadn't taught before. He taught clearly before. And that's like he's teaching a code, a secret code to his followers that I'm going to let you in on something here. And that whole tenor of all three Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, starts changing if you read them. You've got to read the whole Gospel in one setting to see that. But you'll see the tenor all of a sudden now it's downhill. He's expecting to be uh, crucified. So continuing on this middle paragraph on, on page 3. This teaching was something new and not clearly foreseen in Old Testament prophecy. Jesus filled in details not covered by the ancient prophets who saw only the broad features of both advents but were not clear in the distinction. Turn to 1 Peter 1.11. This is a classic passage that tells you the frustration that Old Testament saints fell, and that in fact the disciples were confused. And they, they got kind of irritated by this vagueness, this apparent vagueness in the Word of God. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 11. Go back up just a little bit into the previous verse, verse 10. The prophets who prophesied of the grace that would come to you made careful search and inquiry seeking to know what person or time the Spirit of Christ within them... By the way, what does that tell you about the Old Testament? Who empowered Old Testament prophets? The Spirit of Christ, the Holy Spirit. So, by saying it's the Spirit of Christ, meaning it's the Holy Spirit testifying of Christ to the Old Testament prophets, which means the Old Testament fits with the New. It's not something different. Seeking to know what person or time the Spirit of Christ within them was indicating as he predicted. Now, notice this carefully. Look at the verb. Let's take the sentence apart. The verb is predict. The object, the predicate here, the predicate with the object of the verb are two nouns. What are the two nouns? The sufferings and the glories. Okay? So what Peter's saying is that in the Old Testament there were two themes when connected with messianic prophecy. Suffering and glory. Let me show you examples of both. Turn to Isaiah 53. This is the most famous version, but we didn't, it's not the only one. But it's, it's, it's a very nice and clear one. Here's an example of what Peter's talking about. 
Here's the sufferings. Isaiah 53. We've gone through this before. Verse 3 of Isaiah 53. He was despised, he was forsaken of men, a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief, and like one from whom men hide their face, he was despised and we did not esteem him. So there's an Old Testament text. Isaiah was a prophet. The Spirit of Christ was in Isaiah. The Spirit of Christ in Isaiah led him to write verse 3. Led him to write verse 4. And so there's the sufferings prophesied in the Old Testament. But the glories were also to be... Uh, given to Isaiah. So you turn back a few more chapters to Isaiah chapter 40. Same prophet, same spirit of Christ. Now what do you make of this? Here are the glories that should follow. Isaiah 40. Comfort ye, O comfort ye, you know, Handel's Messiah. Speak kindly to Jerusalem. Call out to her. Her warfare has ended. Excuse me. When is the warfare ended? Her iniquity has been removed? Really? This is the glories which shall follow. These are glories which shall come in the future. That she has received the Lord's hands double for all her sin. And then, of course, it goes on. So, we could go into hundreds of cases of this. But back to Peter's problem. The, the prophets who were led by the Spirit of Christ themselves couldn't make out. So in other words, if we could take a time machine and go back and sit down with Isaiah and say, Isaiah, you know, I'm a little confused. I read in chapter 40 all this about this glorious future. Then I turn over to 53 and I read all about the suffering. How, how do you put it together? And Isaiah would probably look up at us and say, I don't. I write as I am empowered by the Spirit. As he gives me vision, I write it down. I'm not authorized to change it. Message comes in today, I write it down. Message comes in tomorrow, I write it down. not my job to, to re-edit the work of the Holy Spirit. So there's this roughness, this unfinishedness to Old Testament prophets, this incompleteness. And that's the point that we want to make in our page three, that Old Testament prophecy is, is this uh, not totally fitting together stuff. So, in walks the Lord Jesus. Now, if you turn to Matthew 13, in the middle of the Gospel, right after that peak I said, remember all four Gospels have that, all three Gospels have that peak. Well, the four, they all four do, but I, I'm thinking it's mostly the synoptics tonight. Uh, Matthew, and just to get the flavor of where we are in Matthew, if you look back, the previous chapter is obviously chapter 12. And what do you read in verse 31 of the previous chapter? Look at verse 31 of Matthew chapter 12. I say to you, any sin and blasphemy shall forgiven men, but blasphemy against the Spirit shall not be given. And whoever shall speak a word against the Son of Man, it shall be forgiven him. But whoever shall speak against the Holy Spirit, it shall not be forgiven him, either in this age or in the age to come. And then in verse 34, he gets really nasty with these people. Oh, gee, is Jesus living the Christ-like life? Look at verse 34. 
you brood of vipers. How can you, being evil, speak what is good? For the mouth speaks out of that which fills the heart. And, and so in then verse 3, and by your words you shall be justified, by your words you shall be condemned. And uh, you see, the point is that up previously, in verse 30, 24 and 25, the Pharisees, who represent religious leadership of the nation, these were the lawyers, by the way. These are the guys who would correspond our society, the lawyers. And these guys were the ones who thought they had it all together, they could argue anything on any part of the Old Testament. That's all they did. They spent their whole day arguing technicalities. And the technicality was, you know, Jesus healed people in the wrong place, the wrong time, kind of sloppy the way he went about healing. Now, we've got to be very, very careful about how we heal people. And, and it was very, very important that Regulation 2814 be fulfilled. No, no problem with this guy, you know, he just miraculously gave the guy back his life. But, you know, you violated Regulation 13.14. You can't do that. That's important stuff here. So, here are the Pharisees, the legalists of their time, totally missing the picture. And at that point, the Pharisees become a historical decision-making voice. That's the point when the nation, as a nation, articulates its rejection of this Messiah. And that sets up the kingdom problem. And that's why in the next chapter, in chapter 13, things begin to change. And we want to look at some of the things that begin to change. The disciples came, verse 10, and said, Why do you speak to them in parables? See, this hadn't, Jesus hadn't done this quite like this. Remember the Sermon on the Mount? No real parables there. Some illustrations. But you wouldn't say the Sermon on the Mount has parables in it. But now, all of a sudden, there's parables. And so they said, what are you doing this? Now, in verse 11, he begins to tell why he changed his teaching methodology halfway through his career. He says, To you it has been granted to know the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it has not been granted. Verse 13, I speak to them in parables, because while seeing they do not see, while hearing they do not hear, nor do they understand. And then he quotes Isaiah's prophecy, which we can't get into right this moment. point we're making in this section of scripture is that Jesus begins to discuss something called the mysteries of the kingdom. Now these mysteries of the kingdom mean something is changing here. This is a red flag to get everybody's attention. There's some previously unrevealed truths about this Old Testament kingdom that Jesus is now going to deal with. And that's when he gets into the parable of the sowers and the seed and so forth and so on. Back into into uh, page three. As the nation began to reject his ministry, Jesus spoke a series of parables about the mysteries of the kingdom. Briefly, these parables teach that the judgment of evil and subsequent establishment of the kingdom will occur at the end of the inter-advent age. Look in Matthew, back to Matthew 13, 39. 
Because what Jesus is saying is, I've started something, but I'm not finishing it right now. So it's like Jesus' career is cut off. There's going to be something else intervene, and then there's the kingdom. So now he's starting to put a gap between what he's starting as he was going after the disciples and what he will one day finish. Verse 39. Talking about a parable of the sowers and the seed. The one who sows good seeds is the son of man. The field is the world. And so on. And we get to verse 39. And the enemy who sowed them is the devil. And the harvest is when? The harvest is at the end of the age and the reapers are angels. Therefore, just as the tares are gathered up and burned with fire, so shall it be at the end of the age. The Son of Man will send forth His angels, and they will gather out of His kingdom all stumbling blocks and those who commit lawlessness and cast them into the furnace of fire. In that place there shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And so forth. So you can see that the Lord Jesus looked down the corridors of time and He said that in order for the kingdom to come, evil must be dealt with. And so that should remind you of our graph for evil, which we've shown time immemorial up here, so I won't show it again. But remember, it splits. You can't have the kingdom until you deal seriously with institutional and personal evil. And the evil is in Matthew 12. And Jesus is not going to do away with the nation. So if he's not going to deal with doing away with the nation, he can't get rid of the evil without getting rid of the nation, what, what happens here? And that's the setup for, the, for this age that we're now living in. This age in which you and I find ourselves actually came into existence as a result of decisions that were made in the land of Palestine 2,000 years ago. History could have gone differently in the sense of various hypothetical options, obviously, on the sovereignty of God, God has a plan, and so on. But I'm talking about, from the creature perspective, history could have gone differently, a lot differently. We might never have had an opportunity to become Christians. History could have gone right into the kingdom at this point. But it didn't, because the nation rejected the Lord Jesus Christ. Back to chapter, uh, back to page three. Follow me in the notes. Briefly, these parables teach that the judgment of evil and sequential establishment, note sequential establishment, underline the word sequential establishment, meaning the kingdom must be following the judgment of evil that will occur at the end of the inter-advent age. Alva McLean puts it this way. The present age, viewed from the standpoint of the kingdom, is a time of preparation. During this period, the Son of Man is sowing seed, generating and developing a spiritual nucleus for the future kingdom, a group he called the Sons of the Kingdom. At the same time, he is permitting a parallel development of evil in the world under the leadership of Satan. It is the purpose of God to bring both, emphasize both, to bring both to a harvest when the good and the bad will be separated and then to establish the kingdom in power and righteousness. 
So the issue then is, what happens with a rejection of Christ? The rejection of Christ determines history from that point on. Something is going to change. So in order for us to kind of diagram this, let's diagram it as a, as a line. This is, represents the ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ during his incarnation. That ministry ends, and we're going to draw a little parenthesis here, and then it, we talk, and then the kingdom is established. Now, labeling this as K for the kingdom, this is fulfillment of the Old Testament prophesied kingdom. Nothing has changed here. The nature of the kingdom has not changed. And you, this is critical because we're going to be fighting something from now, tonight, on through the rest of this year in, in this section of the church. This is where there's a division inside our evangelical camp. And we're going to talk about it in just a minute. And I want to see, show you where this sets up. This kingdom here is as prophesied in the Old Testament. It is not a modified kingdom. It is not a spiritual version of the Old Testament kingdom. It is the Old Testament. The word kingdom still means kingdom. Because if the Jews were sitting there listening to the Lord Jesus, and he's talking about kingdom, what kingdom do you suppose they had in their mind? The kingdom that they had read about. So, the vocabulary controls our understanding of the kingdom. Now, if you look at the bottom of page 3. This view of the present age, that is, as a parenthesis, is fiercely opposed by amillennialists and postmillennialists who fear that it relegates the church to a secondary role and detracts from the central purpose of the first advent of Christ. Now let me go through that. There's a lot in that sentence. The view of the age as a something that was pried open, something that was injected, as it were, and, and inside here we have the church. This view is argued against vehemently by amillennialists and premillennialists. Now, define terms. Up on the top of page three, I review for you what we did back two years ago when I had a whole section on amillennialism, premillennialism, and postmillennialism. Now, here's the premill position. And by the way, because I know I always hear this, so I'm going to address it. When you start talking like this, people say, oh, we can't bother with those prophetic details. Well, you better bother with it because this sets up the nature of what you're supposed to be doing in the church. If, if you are a pre-meal, I'm but that determines what the mission and priorities are of the church. So this is not a peripheral thing that gets a detail of prophecy. Well, no, it's important than a detail of prophecy. It sets up priorities for obedience in the church age. Let me show you how. In the pre-mill position, what does the pre mean? What's the mill mean? Mill means millennium. What does pre-mill mean? Jesus comes pre, before the millennium. So, in this case, we have the second advent, and we have the kingdom over here, right? Jesus is going to come 
judge, we have the kingdom. That's premillennialism, right? And in premillennialism, that kingdom is a supernatural kingdom. Premillennialists are literal interpreters of Old Testament vocabulary about the kingdom. They don't change it. And when you don't change the vocabulary and hold it constant and keep Old Testament meanings in those words, you wind up as a premillennialist. You have to. You always will wind up that way. Later in the church age, third or fourth century, the church went basically amillennial. Roman Catholicism is amillennial theology. Now, what is also amillennial theology is most of Protestantism, as it existed in the time of the Reformers. And you say, well, why didn't John Calvin and Martin Luther become pre-males? Because Martin Luther and John Calvin were just trying to get the gospel straight. Thanks to them and the Holy Spirit, they didn't have time to go messing around with all the details of eschatology because they had all they could do with soteriology, the doctrine of salvation. You know, blessed be their souls that they got that right. So we, we rejoice in the Reformed theology. Because Reformed theology, which is the second and third generation after Luther and Calvin, has emphasized soteriology and a clear gospel. And we're indebted to Reformed theology for doing that. The problem with it is you don't fossilize theology and like the Holy Spirit has nobody, to, you know, since 1650, the Holy Spirit's never taught anybody anything. The Holy Spirit teaches throughout the church age. That's going to be one of the events we're going to deal with. I'll show you how doctrine has been revealed to the church in sequence, in proper sequence, century after century after century. You don't just come up to the 16th and 17th century and say, stop, okay, we've learned it all. Close the books and move on. That's what Reformed theology does. So on amillennialism, what does that say? There isn't going to be a millennium. What does a prefix mean on a word? A theist. No theology. No, no God. So a millennial means no millennium. Well, how can you not have a millennium? By changing the meaning of the words. By interpreting them as a spiritual way. Or, another device is, well, Jesus, you know, the, the nation rejected Jesus, the nation rejected the Messiah, so the Messiah kingdom's gone. Tough role. That's what happens. So the, the millennial kingdom is never brought into existence historically. It's gone. Throughout the baby with the bathwater. That's the amillennial. Now the post-mill is actually a version of amillennialism that has progress in it. Postmillennialism doesn't really believe in a millennium. What they say is, what does post mean? After. Christ comes after the millennium. After the what? After the millennium. Uh, when's the millennium come? Oh, the church brings it in. Oh, really? You've been living in a church more than five years and you haven't seen a real juicy church split? That's a picture of the kingdom of God. I don't think so. The church isn't a witness to the kingdom. If it is, you know, God help us. Postmillennialism argues the church is such a wonderful thing and so powerful, so righteous and so holy that it's going to conquer the world. 
And then when it conquers the world, it'll call Jesus down. Come on down, and you, here's the kingdom for you. Church gives the kingdom to Jesus. Now, of course, I, I'm being a little sarcastic. Post-millennialists believe that God works through the church to bring that about. But the point still is, chronologically, Jesus Christ comes after the church has conquered the world. Okay? Now, let me say what happens here politically and ecclesiologically. Where do you think premillennialism goes politically? If you're a pre-mill, how does that affect your politics? How does that affect your belief about the church? If you believe that the kingdom can't come until Christ returns, is your focus going to be on Christ or the kingdom? Going to be on Christ. So in this view... The church is not in a conquistador role. The church is to be faithful to whatever Christ has told it to do and stick with that. If you are an amillennialist, you don't know what the millennium's about, so you kind of discarded all that, and the church kind of becomes a, a surrogate for all that Old Testament prophecy. And these two positions are therefore what we call replacement theology. Now I'll explain that term because we're going to use it again and again. By replacement theology, we mean that the church is going to replace Israel in the plan of God. That when Israel turned against her Messiah... That was it. From that point on, Israel has no national purpose whatsoever. The present state of Israel is not the early foreshocks of a future Israel at all. Just a bunch of Jews that are causing trouble in the Middle East. So in this view, everything that was given to Israel has now been transferred over to the church, minus all the discipline, of course. You ever hear him about talking about the plagues and the judgments? Oh, no, we don't transfer those to the church. We just transfer the blessings. Israel in the plan, what was Israel? A nation, a family, or a voluntary association? It was a nation. What is the church? Voluntary association. Well, if the church replaces Israel, you see what it sets up in the mind of people? That the church is a nation. And the church has a kind of a political identity of some sort. And that's why this theology has traditionally led to national churches. Lutheranism. Church of England. Presbyterian church in Scotland, kind of. The Congregational Church in New England under the Puritans. These were political institutions. And let, I mean, we can say talk about the Pope, <clears throat> but the Protestant national churches had just as much political influence as the Roman Catholic Church. They dominated their countries. And woe be to you if you ever crossed that whole thing. You got in tr trouble real fast. So, this theology is not just a little fine point. This theology breeds certain attitudes. 
In Germany, you know who the Germans? If you went through and did a survey in 1930s of Germany, you know where the Germans who opposed Hitler came from, largely? Brethren pre-mill groups. Now, why do you think so? Fine point of theology. I don't think so. Ask some of the evangelical brethren who opposed Hitler in the 30s. Why were the rest of the Germans? Yay, 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 the kingdom has come. The theologians of the Lutheran church said, some, many of them, not some, like Bonhoeffer, but there were theologians who went around Germany in the 30s said, the kingdom has come in the person of the Führer. Because they couldn't distinguish the church politically as an entity because it was an entity. The church was Germany. I mean, every German is proud of Luther. Luther wrote the Bible. He translated the Bible. He created the German language. So it was very difficult to distinguish German politics from Christianity. Thank God Hitler didn't have the internet or the talking heads on TV. But this replacement theology spawns this. Now, it also has another fruit that we've noticed in history. Not only does it tend to spawn national churches, but it tends to spawn anti-Semitism. Now, this shouldn't be hard to see. Why does it spawn anti-Semitism? What is the name of theology? Replacement theology. Do Jews have any more purpose in history? What was the Jews' last act in history? in replacement theology. Rejected Christ. Bad people. So anti-Semitism in national churches are spawned out of this eschatology. Don't think they're not. Ideas have consequences. And bad ideas have bad consequences. So it behooves us to get our eschatology straight. And that's what we're going to do this, this year. We're going to work with the details of eschatology. Up in the top paragraph on, on page three, I want you to notice where I deal with those three words. In short, was the triumphant kingdom to be inside mortal history, or was it essentially the eternal state? After Christ came and was rejected, the controversy became more complex because of the rise of the church and its relationship with the kingdom and Israel. Was the church a spiritualized version of Israel and the kingdom, which would be amillennialism, or was it actually a nation-like entity replacing Israel that was to conquer the world and bring into existence a physical, political kingdom to hand over to the Messiah? Postmillennialism. Or was the church a new body distinct from Israel which somehow prepared the way for the yet-to-be-realized kingdom, premillennialism? Now down at the bottom, or on the next page. We're talking about Reformed theology, and we're going we're to deal with that this year increasingly, so let me uh, point out what we're doing here. So you just build your vocabulary because you can't think without vocabulary. So we're going to build a little bit of a little theological vocabulary. Over here, I'm going to put the word 
reformed. Over here, I'm going to put the word dispensational. Now, this is not quite accurate. Because dispensational theology, which I'll get into as we go through these things, actually came out of the Reformed camp. The early dispensations were all Reformed people. Today, uh, he's 90 years old, but Dr. John Walvert, who was the Chancellor of Dallas Seminary, is a Presbyterian, and he is a Reformed theologian. And I always like to remind people by that when I discuss this with my Reformed friends, and they can't, and they always make a distinction, say, you can't be a dispensationalist or a reformer. Yes, you can. John Walvert is. So, he, so, so reform theology spawned dispensationalism. Now, reform theology tends to be a-mill and post-mill. There are sometimes pre-mills, but the premillennialism isn't the literal kind of premillennialism. It's the idea that Israel has no national future, but somehow the Jews will come in uh, into the church finally, and that will be the sort of the end kingdom type thing. Dispensationalists are always premill. Okay. So you begin to, so as you walk around Christian circles and go into Christian bookstores and you discuss with Christian friends, you'll see these things. You know, you, you, you'll see this in some of your Christian acquaintances. So just, I'm just showing you where people are coming from here. If you look at, on page four, the top paragraph, here's why the Reformed people don't like dispensationalism. Don't like it for a number of reasons. But if, if you identify yourself as believing in literal prophecy, and so, don't be surprised if somebody's going to say, oh, you're one of those dispensational people. And, and you want to, are they calling me names or what are they doing? Uh, is that a bad name, a good name, or what? Um, so here, here's, what, here's their view of what's going on here. Okay? Always understand, understand people. Such advocates of Reformed theology insist that divine cause-effect must be explained as though we can totally comprehend it. Now, they're not quite so brash, but the idea is that... Sure, here, here's the argument. Did Jesus come to die on the cross? Yes. I mean, you can't say that was a peripheral act. And if he hadn't died on the cross, where would we be? Okay? So understand that. They were right. They are right there. There's, see, because Reformed theology is correct soteriologically. So, when they say, you've got to make the cross of Christ the center of Jesus' ministry, they're right. So, their idea of us is that when we argue that Jesus was actually inviting Israel into the kingdom prior to the cross getting rejected, and then the cross comes in because of the rejection, they think that we're saying that's plan B. They're thinking that the, the cross is a sort of an after effect of this rejection, that if Messiah had walked into Israel and said, accept me as your king and you can have your kingdom, there would never have been a cross. Okay? No, they're right. So, so what's going on here? Let's follow. Such advocates of Reformed theology insist divine cause effect be violent. Therefore, they demand that Christ died for only the elect. Remember we went through that? 
elect only for the, the limited atonement issue and so on. That's always Reformed theology. Reformed theology is always limited atonement. And the reason they say that is, lest the atonement be wasted and God's purposes for naughts. What bothers the Reformed mentality is the fear that God has decreed something and it goes to waste. So in their mind, that Jesus could never have died for unbelievers. Because unbelievers who, who die as unbelievers go to hell. They never receive the benefits of the cross, the soteriological benefits of the cross. So in the Reformed mind, they're thinking, wait a minute, that makes Jesus' cross of none effect. It, it's like all, he did all these riches and it's just kind of thrown in the, in the toilet. So that's the, because they come to this whole thing with this way of seeing God's sovereignty work out that gets them in, into these positions. Therefore, they demand that Christ died only for the elect. The relationship of the atonement to the non-elect tends to be downgraded or ignored in this view. Now, likewise, and here's the topic for tonight. Likewise, they demand that Israel's rejection of Christ which is so central to the cross, he could never have been crucified unless he was rejected. So they demand that Israel's rejection of Christ mark the end of that nation's position in God's plan and hence the kingdom promises to it. That was fundamental. It was part of the decree to go to the cross and that decree to go to the cross meant that Christ had to be rejected. If Christ had to be rejected, the nation had to be ended. That was it. It's over. Period. The idea that Jesus made a genuine offer to bring the kingdom to Israel prior to the cross and that Israel rejected this offer but will one day still receive the kingdom is anathema to this kind of Reformed theology. Proponents of this theology believe that this approach makes the cross a plan B because it results from the negative side of a choice. Okay? Negative side of a choice. Let's draw that on the, on the diagram. Here's the reform position. You go through history and people are faced with choices. Israel encountered the Lord Jesus Christ. When Israel encountered the Lord Jesus Christ, Israel went negative volition and rejected. As a result of that, there was the cross. The Reformed mind doesn't like to see that kind of diagram. It would rather see this kind of a diagram. That God sovereignly worked everything out and so on and got to this and, and he cast aside Israel. They'd rather draw it that way. He cast aside Israel and brought about the cross. Israel was, so to speak, sacrificed in order to get Christ sacrificed. They don't like the idea that Christ, at this point, was offering himself to the nation as the national Messiah and could have, in one sense, they could have gone positive and didn't, and they went negative, and the cross resulted from the negative side of the choice. And they say, boy, you can't, you can't no, that's not honoring the Lord. Well, let's see if it's honoring the Lord or not. Next paragraph, and we'll have to finish with this paragraph. 
Such theology forgets that very similar offers, rejections, and plan Bs occurred in past history. In Eden, the offer to man to dominate and subdue the earth was rejected and brought about our present fallen mortal history with the need for the cross, which was the result of negative choice. What if Adam and Eve hadn't, hadn't have disobeyed? Would Jesus have had to go to the cross? Okay. Then didn't Jesus go to the cross because of a negative decision? Adam and Eve's part? Okay. So there's a clear-cut case right there. Next case. In the centuries after the flood, the offer to build a new civilization was rejected and resulted in calling out of a counterculture in Abraham. It was the result of a negative choice, wasn't it? Nimrod, all the people apostatized in Noah's family, destroyed civilization, paganized it. As a result of a negative choice, God had to call Abraham. Couldn't you also argue and say, well, I mean, why do, you, why do you view history that way? I mean, God had to bring about the Jews to bring about Jesus. I mean, that, uh, this, you're, you're making it sound like after Noah, there could have been a real genuine civilization. Yeah, that's what the offer was all about. Let's come on down to the next one. After Mount Sinai, what did God offer Israel? Entree to the land, right? Did they take the entree to the land, or did they wait 40 years and try it again? Waited 40 years and tried again. So there was an offer, and there was a negative choice involved, and it resulted in God's plan. In the days of Samuel, the offer of a politically simple theocracy was rejected and resulted in the rise of the monarchy. The monarchy, remember? Samuel's day. It was very reluctantly created. As a result of Saul, uh, as a result of the judges' period, every man did what was right in his own eyes, and so you had the rise of the monarchy. But the monarchy was necessary to define the nature of the Messiah. But that was the result of the negative decision. At the end of the book of Judges. During the fall of the kingdom and exile, the offer of an end-time restoration of the nation was made impossible. Remember Daniel's prayer, the end of seventy years. Daniel read in Jeremiah, "Hey, in seventy years, we're supposed to have the kingdom back again." And God said, no, Daniel, 70 times 7. Uh-oh. Got postponed. And, of course, it's in the postponement period that Christ dies. So, each of these situations could similarly be criticized as bringing about plan Bs. But that's the clear pattern of God's working in history. So when we dispensationalists talk about Christ offering himself, offering the opportunity of the nation to inherit the kingdom, we're doing nothing else than anybody would have done in any of the other passages. It's the same argument. All right. Having said all that, we want to, tonight, uh, to next time, go now to the ascension. That's the introduction. Tonight we've gone through the introductory phase of setting up for the events we're now going to study. The inter-advent age brought into existence by the rejection of Jesus Christ. Father, we thank you for our time tonight. We thank you for the Holy Spirit who has created Scripture, who worked with the prophets, who worked with prophets who, as we learned tonight, did not personally, in their horizon of their own finite human understanding, really understand what you were saying but they had trust in you that you knew what you were saying and what you said hooked up carefully and rationally and perfectly with everything else you said. 
And on that basis, they walked by faith. May we so do also. In Christ's name, amen. Um, we'll just uh, open it up for some Q&A for, uh, for a while tonight. Yes, George, from the back. Uh, when, you were, uh, when you were talking about Mm-hmm. Yeah, kind of like a parallel. Okay, a parallel with going to waste, uh, with, uh, with the transubstantiation and the priest drinking the wine to get so that it you isn't thrown out after it's consecrated, after it's part of God's work. Yeah. Oh, that was uh, Chafer, but Walford was uh, later the chancellor. Well, I have to be careful there, George. I, may, I should have qualified myself. <clears throat> there's Reformed thought, and then there's Reformed thought. And the, um, the point is, what I was trying to say was that the first dispensationalists were all Calvinists, Reformed people. They didn't start in Arminian circles. and started in Calvinist circles. Darby was an Anglican, and he was... Uh, Anglican theology is Calvinistic. So <clears throat> there's no question that dispensations arose in the Calvinist environment, in a Reformed environment. It's just that after it arose and made this distinction, basically in eschatology, it really upset the Reformed camp. They're still upset and angry about it. Um, reformed guys on the radio uh, have, have written books that basically label dispensation as a cult. Uh, it's, it's just foolish. It seems like the covenant theology is, is one camp. Yes. Uh, well, even then, though, George, you can act, in theory, you could be a covenant theologian and still be a dispensationalist. As long as you didn't push it too far. Um, it, it's just a sort of greasy area. What I'm trying to get, uh, all I'm trying to do here by making this distinction for you all is just to introduce the words because you'll hear them. And, and you'll hear them tossed in and around. So all I'm trying to do is just kind of give you some understanding of the vocabulary of, of people because sooner or later you're going to be sitting next to somebody in a Christian conference somewhere or at work or something else. And you'll be talking about uh, the prophecies of Israel, and you get this kind of cross-eyed stare. And, uh, you know, I mean, you don't believe that? Well, no. I mean, you know, and then, we, then you're going to be in the middle of it. 
the discussion will unfold in the conversation, you're going to be wondering, what the heck did I get into here? And so I'm telling you what you're getting into. It's just that um, to make a nice, smooth, closed theological system um, that makes sense soteriologically, um, the eschatological questions, that is, questions of prophecy, questions of the destiny of the church, uh, the destiny of Israel, uh, have largely been neglected. So there's, there's just those two patterns, those two moles that, that exist. And you just want, as you walk around, have fellowship with people, you just want to be aware that you, you'll encounter people like that. Yes? In the same, okay, that's a good question. Is how could Christ be accepted, and wouldn't that negate the cross? It had, had he been accepted, uh, yeah, in the same way that if Noah, when he preached, had actually had a revival, they wouldn't have fit in the boat. In the same way that had Adam and Eve originally just obeyed the Lord. There wouldn't have been a need for, them, for Christ to be crucified. So in each one of those cases, what I see that as being, and I, I think if you think about it for a little bit, what it does, it enlarges your view of the sovereignty of God in that he is so sovereign in such a mysterious way that evil accomplishes his purpose. And we have to, we have to think about that in, in the sense that not evil is, is rewarded, but uh, fall of Satan. What if Satan hadn't fallen? Um, it's, these things... Remember, do you remember in the Last Supper? Here's a good passage of Scripture to think about. In the Last Supper, when Judas was about to betray Jesus, remember his words, strange words he said? He looked down at the table and he said, this must, ha this must come to pass, but woe through whom it comes to pass. So in that one statement, the Lord basically said, there has to be a, a, an unbeliever. There has to be someone to betray me. There has to be a treason among the disciples. But woe to the disciple who is the traitor. And these are very sobering words. Yes. There still seems to be that there were people that still had to lay his life down as the lamb in some way. 
Oh, yeah, just, just absolutely. And Jesus would still have to lay his life down in order for what we now know to be the plan of God to have been executed. Just like it was necessary um, for all those choices that I made. That Christ was crucified from when? From before the foundation of the world, right? Okay. Well, then didn't Adam and Eve... Are we going to say that the offer to Adam and Eve to obey was, was, uh, was not genuine? I don't think so. I think you have to say that Christ created Adam and Eve sinless and he made a genuine offer uh, for them to live sinless lives and obey him. But had they lived uh, the obedient lives, then what about Christ being slain from before the foundation of the world? You see? I mean, this is difficult stuff because you get into this. But, but the point is that God's way always comes to pass. And it seems to involve the agency, the secondary agency of negative choices. The negative choices set up the very situation that fulfills prophecy. Think about the most eloquent example of this is... Why did Satan want to kill Christ? I mean, why, did, why was there hatred against Jesus Christ? Knock him off and get him out of here. Right? Get rid of this guy. Messing around my world system. Very dangerous. And the very act of killing him, of trying to murder Jesus Christ, undid his whole kingdom. That's the, that's the thing to get, is that God is so magnificently sovereign that he decrees where he's going and he, he makes these offers. But he also knows how things will work out and he also decrees and sets up history so that it comes out that way. That's not true of some in the reform camp, but it's generally, if you had to have a set of priorities, the highest priority is a consistent theology. After that, we'll deal with the text. And I'll tell you why, that, that you want to watch this, is because uh, reform theology has, has, is coming in with great appeal today. Lots of people get involved in it. And I'll tell you why they're getting involved in it. Because there's a powerful strength in it. There's a consistency in it. And we live in a very chaotic age. We live in an age of mysticism. We live in an age of total neglect of Bible doctrine. We live in an age where there's irrationalism, uh, irrationality all over the board, uh, in the church, out of the church, all over the place. People can hold utterly contradictory positions and never even feel the tension. And into this, all of a sudden, this chaos and cauldron steps the people with a triumphant theology. It's very, very appealing. And there's nothing wrong in wanting to have a consistent theology. It's just that, how about recognizing the fact that since 1650, 
we've had 350 years of church history and the Holy Spirit just might have extended our awareness of doctrine. And he has. So, the point is that yes, we want a consistency in our theology, but we want to learn more and more about the Word of God. And as a result of the lessons learned of the Word of God, we've realized that the church is not a national institution. The church has not replaced Israel in God's plan. So, and the reason we know this is because in, in dispensationalism, if Abraham is promised the land, what would the land have meant to Abraham? Palestine, right? Okay. Was that a contract God made with Abraham? He made a contract with him, right? Okay, he made a contract with Abraham, and then 2,000 years later, now the land doesn't really mean the land, it kind of means the eternal state. What does that do to the hermeneutics of the contract originally made? I mean, think about it. If you had a, uh, an insurance contract, okay, on your house, your homeowner's policy, and let's suppose you live out in the Midwest, and your homeowner's policy, right there in the policy, it said it insured your home. Tornado comes one night, destroys your home. But you and your, your kids and so on got into a tornado cellar, and you got saved, and so, you know, your, your family survived. So you go down and you apply for policy. Policy says home insurance. And then the clever lawyer at the insurance company says... Home, H-O-M-E, meant your family. You got your family. It doesn't mean house. It means family. Now, doesn't that smack a contract fraud to you? It does to me. Somebody's playing loose with the words in the contract. Well, that's the argument between Reformed theology and dispensationalism. When God says land, he's going to give you the land to Abraham, he must mean the land, not something else. So if you take a stubborn attitude toward the terms of these contracts, the Abrahamic contract, or some other contracts, Palestinian contract inside Deuteronomy there, chapter 31, Davidic contract, these are all contracts. How do you change contract language just because five centuries have elapsed? It doesn't make any difference. A contract's a contract. So contract language forces you to say, well, you know, I don't know, Israel rejected Christ, but, but the contract says that Israel will exist forever and have these promises. They haven't got the promises yet, so either the contract's bad, the parties have changed, or something's gone on, or going back to the obvious, the contract's still in force. And Israel's still going to get it. See? So that's where the hang-up is. It's, it's, it's more a hang-up over contractual the hermeneutics and how you interpret a contract language. Whenever you, God promises something in the Bible, God promises it in a language that you can understand. Otherwise, all the promises go out the window. You can't, it's a slippery slope you get on when you start abandoning this. But the problem why people in Reformed theology don't like this is because it gets messy. It gives you a lot more details to have to worry about.
Well, what you're talking about is like if I have to constantly be mentally adjusting myself that no, it's not that God is, is just warping it a little. It's still in Scripture. It still says He was going to come and suffer, and He suffered. Uh-huh. He still offered them the uh-huh. chance, and they rejected it. So uh-huh. I, I keep my hopes there. But then I think of the future. What if He sends another singer? <laughs> well, these are called these are what I call surprise effects in history. And I think it's, we have to acknowledge God can give surprise effects or otherwise we negate um, the uh, created creature distinction. Think of it, for example, if you were Eve and the promise came to you that you would bear the son. And apparently this is what she did. She believed that her firstborn was the Messiah. Now what was missing, and it was, was God wrong in what he said to her? No. It's just that in the course of time, there was a longer time involved than Eve thought. And if you think about those two, like Isaiah 40 and Isaiah 53, can you imagine the struggle those Old Testament people had trying to put these two pictures of the Messiah together? You know, they came up with all kinds of schemes. They even came up with two Messiahs, a suffering Messiah and a glorious Messiah, because they couldn't get it together. And there's, there's areas of prophecy we haven't got it together. There's no reason that says, for example, that the tribulation has to begin with after the rapture of the church. There's space in there. And God can inject something. But it doesn't concern us because what where you rest is the rapture is the end of the church age. And that's all. I mean, if the rapture is the rapture, you're not, not going to worry about what goes on after the rapture, right? Okay, so Don is all cool now. <laughs> okay, well, uh, time's up, so we'll we'll uh, move on next time.